You need control over your job. You need autonomy in your job, at least a reasonable amount of it. You need efficacy. You need to know that what you're doing works and you need to have an impact. We look back at the ideas of setting boundaries around controlling your calendar, starting with controlling yourself, doing what you're supposed to be doing during the time you've set aside to do it against clear actions that you delineated to do. Hello and welcome to the Optimal Agency Podcast. My name is Patrick Cummings, I'm joined as always by John Gilson. Together with you, we're exploring the ideas of agency, diving deep to discover a set of guidelines on how each of us can best operate in the day-to-day to maximize our personal autonomy, professional freedom, and ultimately our positive impact on the world. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. How are you, John? I'm fired up, Patrick. <laughs> What we're talking about this time around, we've got a listener question about knowing if it is time to take a leap of faith and pursue a dream business. Our main conversation this week is going to be uh, one about burnout, what it is and how agency can get you out of it. And then we'll wrap up this episode with a hot take on the rising trend of selling nostalgia dripping toys to adults. Ready to go? Let's do it. As we do, we answer a listener question. To open up our episodes, this is from Dottie. A little context for her. She says, uh, my husband is 49. I'm 47. We're both physicians. We've got three girls, 9, 12, and uh, 13, and a dog. Uh, The husband works full-time as an emergency department physician, and she works uh, half-time as a pulmonary and critical care physician. This is what she sent us. She says, our only home, or rather, our only debt is our home. We have about 15 years left on our mortgage. We buy our cars with cash saved up. We travel with cash saved up. We contribute the max to our 403B accounts, HSA accounts, and we contribute to three college funds for our girls that we started when each were born. Our life is good. We are happy and healthy, both doing CrossFit five or six days a week. However, our jobs require us to care for people that rarely take care of themselves. We treat patients uh, reactively instead of proactively. Our hands are often tied by insurance, time given to spend with each patient, etc. We have been considering starting our own healthcare health span business, which would include a gym, uh, PT, nutrition, et cetera. Our goal would be preventing all the chronic diseases that we are now treating in our current jobs. This would require a lot of time and money to start. We love spending time with our girls and they are at awesome ages, but work wears us down. How do we know when the time is right to make the change? It would take years for the new business to be as successful from an hourly wage standpoint compared to our current jobs. We would not have the retirement benefits or health benefits of our current jobs, but I can't stop thinking about the idea. Yeah, this is awesome. Uh, Dottie, for you and your husband, thanks for your work. It's obviously of critical importance to the people that you are already taken care of. Uh, whether they're taking care of themselves or not. So let's just review the bullet points here. Dottie and her husband have a wonderful family. They have good, high-paying careers, and they're obviously extremely fiscally responsible, right? And so they're wealthy. Uh, And if they're not absolutely wealthy in net worth terms today, they're going to be because everything's aimed at the right direction. And so Dottie's question essentially boils down to how do I start a longevity and lifespan enhancing clinic uh, at the same time that I've got this very structured life and some some young ones, especially three daughters that we're caring for, and we're going to be caring for a minimum of about another 11 years uh, with that, you know, with that nine-year-old. And so what do we do? Well, first, Dottie. I want to point out 
all of the limiting beliefs that you gave us in your question, because I think it's really important that somebody shed a light on these for you. Okay. So the first one is it would take years for a new business to replace our current income. That's an assumption. Okay. And it may not be a good one if the demand for the product that you're planning to offer is high. Okay. So let's just point out that's a limiting belief. What you should do there is write down what is that number? What is that number and how soon into the new business do you need to achieve it? Okay. And Patrick, you'll be super surprised by this. I'm actually going to push Dottie to do a financial plan. <laughs> You're going to be shocked. Okay. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the second limiting belief here. You cannot have health and retirement benefits as a self-employed person. That's also not accurate. Uh, in any way, shape, or form. You can have both of those things as a self-employed person, as somebody who owns your own business. Don't not do this because of your benefits. Don't not do this because of your salary if you can develop a plan to replace those things. Okay. The third uh, is that uh, this will, and this is not a limiting belief, but it could be framed as one, this is going to cost a lot of money to start this clinic. Okay. Yes, but let's differentiate between your money and money. Okay. So one of the things that people do when they're going to start a really capital intensive business that they can't self fund is they get other people to fund it. Uh, and so I'm thinking of Amazon's purchase of one medical concierge level longevity and health span driven medicine for frankly high net worth people. That's what it is. This business model exists. Okay. And so if we look at that and we say, well, wait a minute, this doesn't have to be your money. It just has to be money. A couple of things now have to happen. Here's the first I would suggest. I want you to find someone who has done this already because you did not come up with this idea wholesale, right? I'm very familiar with the fact that this model already exists. Uh, in our community, uh, Patrick, I know that Julie Fouché, has run at this. Uh, I know, of course, on the global scale, Peter Atia is the longevity doc. He's building his entire practice around this. This exists. And so what I need you to do, Dottie, is find out what is the financial and business model that underpins this in a really strong way. And I need you to adopt that. Then I need you to take on a couple of ideas. To build this clinic, you and your husband do not have to do it alone. You can do it with other physicians. You can also do it with business development people. These are non-physicians who already know the practice of running a practice. Okay, So you can find these people, partner these people, and share their vision. It's interesting to me in starting a company that a lot of times the missing ingredient is anathema to the people missing it. So follow me here. I'm a BD guy. I can sell things. I don't know five physicians that I could get to run a longevity practice. And if I'm betting, if I got into a group of five physicians and said, who of you knows that does startups, you guys would all go, uh, right, nobody. And so a lot of times it's these communities connecting to each other, sharing the vision and saying, who can we get on our bus? Okay. I want to get back to limiting beliefs one more time, Dottie. There are two that jumped out at me. One, that you cannot move towards proactive care with the current population of people that you're treating. Okay? That can't possibly be true. You are treating people who are very sick, 
but every treatment that you give them can do two things. It can resolve the issue they've currently got or attempt that, but it can also prevent it from getting worse. That is proactive care. And so what are you doing to show those people lifestyle habits? And one of the things that's really interesting to me is we also think insurance doesn't doesn't uh, prioritize self-care, but the level of ignorance among at least the physicians that I've been treated by as to what my insurance does and does not allow is profound. And one of the things that my insurance allows is a reimbursement for gym membership. There's actually a whole host of proactive things that they'll essentially pay me for, including gym equipment. And these things have gotten wider and wider and wider as to what the insurance company will pay for. When a patient for that 15-minute consult walks into your office, do you know what zero-cost proactive things are available to them? If not, find out. You will be head and shoulders uh, over every other physician if your front desk staff is looking up the billing codes and saying, this person has this insurance that has these proactive benefits. Tell your clients about those benefits because they don't know. They don't know. And as a pulmonary care specialist, you're dealing with probably lung cancers, sleep apneas, et cetera, really horrible diseases that are really far gone. Those people still need to exercise. They still need to do those things. So start taking the idea that I can find that impact and meaning by helping those people. So I think, Dottie, that you're going to end up with a VC or private equity-backed business with a much larger group than you and your husband because it is capital-intensive. I think it is absolutely possible. I think you can do it. And you need to take a really strong inventory of what that business model is and what your personal financial needs are by finding somebody who's already run down that road. And in the meantime, find all the impact you can in your business by being as proactive as possible by understanding what you can do in 15 minutes for the people you're seeing. My one follow-up question, and it's the thing that stood out to me with the question, and I love your call out of the, of the limiting beliefs. To, to me, and it's related to that, is the the seeking of... So there, there's sort of two things. It was like, I really love this idea, but I have the security over here. And there's also a bit of a limiting belief that you maybe can't have security while also pursuing the more ambitious, the more passion-driven stuff. But I'm just curious... Dotty related or not, how do you think about the balance between the the need for the want for security and the need for and the want for uh, personal satisfaction, fulfillment, impact, and the agency that would come along with this pursuit if Dottie and her husband did it? Like those to me, that was the 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 tug of war that I read into the question here. It's like oh, all this security over here, but this over here. <laughs> I'm so intensely practical about these things. I would anticipate, and it, like if you said Gilson, do this. Like you're the you're the man, right? Go ahead and get this done. I would replace my income before I jumped. I'd replace my income before I did, you know, that thing. And I, you know, looking at saying, okay, where and how can I start this business with that? Well, pulling down my current salary and doing a decent job at what needs to be done. Uh, I don't think. There's such a there's this desire, and it's 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 fantasy that we can just <laughs> switch tacks. We can just jump out of the airplane, and there will be a parachute. Like you can't just jump out of the airplane, and there will be a parachute. Make sure there's a parachute. Make sure it's packed correctly. 
Make sure you're at the right altitude. Make sure the plane's going in the right spot. Make sure you know where you're landing. Make sure your gear works, right? And so I, as I think about it, <clears throat> here's what I think about it in a purely practical dotty sense. Okay, you're contributing all the money to your 403B, your daughter's college funds, et cetera. I'm guessing if you're both physicians, your daughters have innate IQs through the roof. Guessing. And I'm similarly guessing they don't actually need you to pay for college. <laughs> really. I, and genuinely, because they'll get scholarships and they're all going to, you know, Yale and Harvard and Dartmouth anyway, because they're going to, because you sound like fantastic people who are raising fantastic kids to me. How much money are you pushing into the, that future security to the neglect of now? You know, if you guys didn't contribute to those accounts for two years, how much money would that generate and how much security would that give you to make the transition? So I typically look at personal finance and say, well, how can I use the money I'm already getting to de-risk this thing? And you're right. You can't have it all, but you can make sure that you're not jumping out of the plane with a Jansport backpack on instead, <laughs> of, a, instead of a parachute. Love it. I love the throwback to the 80s or but, maybe the 90s of the Jansport. Dude, you got to pay attention. That stuff comes <laughs> back, comes back. Dig it. All right. Uh, thank you to Dottie. Hopefully that was helpful. Uh, do send us your questions. Uh, they will uh, likely show up in a future episode. And one of the ways that you can get a question into uh, a future episode is to be on our newsletter and just respond to any one of those that we send out. If you head to optimalagency.co slash newsletter, you will get on that list. You will also get the 35 books that we believe you should read on your way toward agency books like The Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Uh, so good you can't, they can't ignore you by Cal Newport, The Simple Path to Wealth and 4,000 Weeks by Oliver Berkman. Again, optimalagency.co slash newsletter and you will get that list. All right, my friend, we're gonna do a deep dive this week on burnout and why so many people claim to be burned out. I wanna start with a simple definition. Uh, I'm, I'm pulling this from an article by Arthur Brooks in The Atlantic. He says, uh, in 1974, the German-American psychologist Hermann Freudenberger, no idea if I'm getting that right, uh, supplied a definition of the noun burnout as the state of being, quote, exhausted by being, uh, by making extreme demands on energy, strength, or resources from one's job, which would cause one to become ineffective in achieving all intents and purposes. So that is a, a definition of burnout, but how do you describe burnout? How would you define it? Mm, Freudenberger. Freudenberger. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, when I when I hear that, that that sounds like a non-definition definition to me. <laughs> you know, it's kind of describing the end state as the thing. Uh, and so, okay. So what is burnout? It's when you get disengaged at work, when you start to feel hostile towards your coworkers or your job or your customers, uh, when you get a bunch of emotional fatigue and so you stop achieving, right? It's quiet, it's quiet quitting, essentially. It's keep giving me the paycheck, but I hate it here, you know? And it tends to be underlined, but like if you find yourself running around the world saying, I need to find a new job, I hate my boss, right? These kinds of things. Uh, you get to work and you're like, ah, if I just have six shots of espresso, I can open my email. Like if, <laughs> if that's you, you're, you know, mm -hmm. you're, you're moving towards burnout if you're not there already. And I think burnout is this terribly circular thing where that happens to you. You become disengaged. Therefore, you become ineffective. There before you don't have any impact. Therefore, you stay disengaged. 
Okay. So how do we break that cycle? I think ultimately the best thought that I have as to what is burnout and relating it to optimal agency and, and our theories here is that burnout is a lack of impact. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. It doesn't feel useful to my customers. It doesn't feel useful to me. It doesn't feel useful to my coworkers. What am I even doing here? And the ability to recognize that impact or lack thereof essentially says, hey, I'm not meeting my own expectations of myself. My, they're unmet, right? I wanted to be a great person who did wonderful things in the world and was recognized and lauded for those contributions. And I want those contributions to be real and there aren't any. Uh, this isn't an effective job. And so, yeah, of course you're hostile because you're hostile first towards yourself for having unmet expectations, which leads for you being hostile to the entire environment you've put yourself in, in which you can't have an impact. Yeah, I think about just the nature of work as it is. Like so many of us are, or so many of us, so many jobs can find oneself like five steps away from whatever the customer five steps away from the 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 thing that you work on being a full thing and being out into the market and touching a human being right like it's so easy to be far away from the end state result of whatever it is you're working on such that you you don't even feel connected to the end state you just you're connected to the little bit you have to the you know to the the little the widget you know the part of the widget that you build but not the rest of the widget Whereas you can imagine a time when all of the work you did was part of the end state of whatever that thing is, right? You mowed the, or you, you plowed the fields, you, you did whatever you do with the farm animals, et cetera. And so I, I wonder if that's not also part of, or, or related to the separation of work and impact. Hyper-specialization is a feature of late stage capitalism, right? And so... Yes, being separated from why does this matter by dint of the design is certainly a thing. I think one of the other things is uh, I believe, and you know, I don't have a source for this, but I believe burnout uh, went up during the pandemic in terms of the number of people reporting it. And that's a really specious uh, thing to say simply because burnout gets measured a lot of different ways right? By a lot of different factors, by a lot of different surveyors and psychologists. So we'll take that with a grain of salt. But I think one of the other things is that not only does hyper-specialization lead to burnout, there's also the element of there are bigger things going on in the world that I know of. How could what I'm doing possibly matter? So, you know, let me give you a trite example. Uh, there's a uh, burgeoning war in the Middle East. The, the Ukraine has been invaded by Russia, and I'm sitting here trying to sell Theraguns, right? And so there's this kind of existential angst around that can lead to burnout. Uh, and that's why a lot of people uh, are saying, I'd like to do something with more impact. You know, I'd like to find that that thing that's going to feel like I'm contributing not only to the success of this organization, but to the success of humanity at large. Mm -hmm. uh, Cal Newport does talk talks uh, a lot about burnout, um, and also specifically about what you just said about the pandemic and the the seeming the seeming rise of of burnout that came from the pandemic. And I think one of his arguments is that what happened when work shifted from everything done in person to everything done remotely 
is what he calls an increase of overhead. So an increase of communications, an increase of like systems needed to collaborate, to figure out like, well, what are we doing here? How do we do this in this new environment? Um, and so I think that that's likely, at least his argument is that that's likely why, at least for a certain segment of work, that the pandemic triggered so much because everybody had to rewrite the systems of how we work together towards the thing that we had already figured out how to do, at least to some degree, when we were all in an office together. The idea being that there's all this emotional overhead. There's all this, I don't know how to do this. There's a kind of a lack of efficacy in the moment of I don't know how to get my job done. And of course, you know, the literature that we reviewed, uh, the burnout literature, lack of self-efficacy is a huge element of this lack of control. Uh, and uh, it reminds me again of a phenomenon that I learned, of, I believe, as a freshman in college in, in a psychology class, which is learned helplessness. Okay, so learned helplessness is a psychological phenomenon whereby if you, something bad continues to happen to you and you cannot do anything to escape it, seemingly, you stop trying. And so the experiment, terrible experiment, like would never pass a review board now, but this was done, I believe, in the 1950s. Uh, they took dogs, put them on an electrified grid, held them there essentially with a leash and periodically shocked them. And then when they gave those dogs the ability to escape that grid by jumping over a low fence, dogs that had been exposed to that condition did not escape even though they could. That's learned helplessness. It's saying, hey, I, I have so little control that bad shit's just going to keep happening to me and I'm just going to let it. And that strikes me as a feature of burnout, frankly. I can't control what my bosses say. I can't control how the customers react to this. I can't control, I can't control, I can't control. Why bother? Okay, so if you look and think about it in that way, what's the antidote to burnout? And how do we solve for it if we've got it? Okay, it looks like optimal agency to me. You need control over your job. You need autonomy in your job, at least a reasonable amount of it, okay? You need efficacy. You need to know that what you're doing works and you need to have an impact. Okay, so if I need control, I need autonomy, I need efficacy, and I need impact, how do I get it? Well, I mean, I'd refer back to our boundaries episode, set boundaries and eliminate interruptions. Those are pure tactics for getting control and autonomy over your work, right? So we look back at the ideas of setting boundaries around controlling your calendar, starting with controlling yourself, doing what you're supposed to be doing during the time you've set aside to do it against clear actions that you've delineated to do. About communication protocols with your colleagues that say, I am not going to jump at the hive mind. I will answer emails on a cadence and with a depth of information that's appropriate to the information that's oncoming, but I'm not going to succumb to the tyranny of the falsely urgent. You know, And I think that that control and autonomy can be taken. It doesn't have to be granted. And that's the first thing. If you're burned out, okay, I need you to take and embody agency in the and understand you need to stop letting things happen to you to the degree that that's possible and you need to start taking decisive action okay to reduce what newport's talking about that that emotional and cognitive overhead of doing your job
So we get rid of that. Then we say, okay, what does efficacy look like? Well, efficacy is a, is a wonderful term that frankly, but let me, let me make it even more plain in plain language. Efficacy is getting the job done. Okay. And having the effect you want to have happen. So how do you do that? You find not what you've been told to do. You find what needs to be done and you do it. Okay. And this is something that I, this is the antithesis of not my job, not my problem thinking. Okay. Go to your job and say, everything's my problem. Everything's my problem, right? It's this idea of uh, taking true ownership over what's happening to you and around you and to your company and saying, where can, where do I have the knowledge and skills to literally contribute to this? I used to get yelled at constantly for not, for getting people to cooperate with me who weren't in my department. <laughs> and I heard secondhand, I heard secondhand from a C-level executive that another C-level executive had come to her and said, what's Gilson's problem? She said, what do you mean? She said, well, he keeps getting people in my department to cooperate with him on things that aren't their job. And she said, that doesn't sound like a problem to me. That sounds like an effective executive, right? Because what we would do is say, hey, this needs to be solved. No one's solving it. Let's get the buy-in to get it done. And you're going to feel impact if you do that, if you find the real problems, and if you get good at not being alone with those problems. And I think that's one of the other things that happens is we say, I've identified a problem. I'd like to go fix it. Well, first I need to rally support around it. And it's really hard to feel like you're not having efficacy and impact if you've got a team of six people who have all said, this is a problem, yeah, let's go get it, right? And so I think one of the things that we came across in research for this episode that I loved was the idea of uh, impact players uh, and, and that book. So maybe we can read that in and chat about that a little bit. Yep. So impact players is from uh, an author named Liz Wiseman. Um, do you remember what the book is called? Cause I don't remember it. It might uh, be called, I think it's called impact players. There you go. That would be it, a good title if it is. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's effectively what you're describing, which is, and I remember the image that she put out was the idea of like, go find the fire and go put the fire out. Right. Which is sort of what you're, de what you're describing, which is like, don't wait for somebody to tell you what to do, which is very much, uh, the opposite of agency, <laughs> as we've talked about, but instead create the opportunities that you seek to have inside of the workplace. If you have a lack of meaning in your job, you're essentially saying, hey, this doesn't matter. Something matters. Find out what it is and do it. You know, and to Liz Wiseman's point, like what matters the most? Like, well, what's on fire? It matters. You know, and I'll tell you, uh, it's hard to feel ineffective when you start to try and touch levers around revenue generation at your business. When you start to say, here's an opportunity we're not taking, here's how to, let's take it. Here's a market we're not going into, let's get into it, right? It's hard to, to not feel that impact because there are things you'll be recognized for. I think where it's harder 
is when you're in the service side of a business or the operation side of a business. And frankly, what you do gets taken for granted. I have a lot of uh, sim uh, empathy, I would say, and well, probably sympathy because I've never done the job for the IT teams and the coding teams and the website teams, right? The, the folks who no one notices if what you did works and everyone notices if broke. what you're doing breaks. <laughs> yep. Right. Like that, those are rough jobs. Those are rough jobs. And so you can be service oriented. You can be running to the fire in, you know, in the, in the, uh, in the IT group, or you can be doing that in a coding group. And frankly, everything's kind of behind the curtain and you're going, why are these sales and marketing people getting all the glory here for selling the thing? You know, uh, and I think that's the place where burnout needs to be addressed head on, not at just the individual level. It needs to be addressed at the employer level. How do I connect the what those people do to the impact that is being had in the company and from a leadership level? How do I shout that out? How do I make sure that's understood? And how do I make sure that's rewarded? One of the, and maybe this is where we can wrap up because I think it gets us into a little bit we're, maybe a little bit more tactical, actionable ideas. Um, but one of the, the concepts that we came across, and this is from the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health, is this concept of job crafting, which is not a phrase I'd heard before. But as soon as I heard it, as soon as I read it, and I think you did the same, uh, we reacted really well, really strongly to it. Uh, and in that paper, it says job crafting is an individual bottom-up intervention initiated by the employees themselves, which consists of actively modifying their job as long as the job mission is fulfilled by reconfiguring the way they approach tasks and negotiating the job content, uh, content allowing employees to adjust their jobs to their personal knowledge, skills, abilities, and their preferences and needs. And so what I wanted to do, they just, they just gave four um, types of adjustments made with with job crafting. And I'd love to just do a quick hot take on each one of them. And I'll start with the fourth one because you've already hit on it a little bit, which is, uh, or you've hit it on it quite a bit, which is increased demand for challenges at work. And they say, when an interesting interesting project comes up, proactively offer to work on it. When there is little to do, offer to help coworkers and ask for more responsibility from the supervisor. Yeah. Okay. Hot take. Uh, and this will, this will be very much in character, I bet. Uh, it says, when an interesting project comes up. No, screw that. Make it up. <laughs> Make that. it up. Make yep. up an interesting project, an interesting challenge that matters and go after it. Man, if you sit around waiting for cool assignments to show up, uh, you might be waiting for the rest of your career. Yeah, you can create those. And there, there's a lobbying effort involved there but it's a lot more fun that way. Yeah, it reminds me, and you said that you said something before that reminded me of it as well, which is the concept that we've talked about before, which is ask for what you want. <laughs> I think yeah. it's such a powerful, <laughs> it's such a powerful practice to, to put into your life. Um, and I think that a lot of what you say, a lot of what you've done can be reverse engineered back to a, not even a comfort, but like a, an excitement at asking for what you want. <laughs> and, and enthusiasm and being happy for it. <laughs> with a and being happy with a 300 batting average. That's right. Okay, another one of their uh, adjustments: um, increasing structural job resources. They say doing what is possible to develop professional skills and learn new things on the job. Mm. It's hard to hate your job if you're really, really good at it. Okay, and so. I think one of the things I love about you, Patrick, is you're, you've really embraced this whole AI-driven tools to do the job faster. Tell me you don't find that engaging, right? Mm -hmm, totally. And you're, you know, you're crushing it. You're doing a really great job with it. And 
it's making it feel, I'm sure, like you're more effective at your job, which has got to be relieving some of the pressure of doing that job. There are skills that you, if you had, you'd be better at your job that you don't have. Go get them and deploy them. And one of my favorite, and this is maybe a a little far afield, but okay, if you know how to do something nobody else in your organization knows how to do, and you get really efficient at doing it, you don't have to tell them you're really efficient at it. (laughs) In other words, it can look like eight or 10 or 15 hours of output. It took you half an hour, right? What do you, what do you get to do with the other, whatever, seven to 14 and a half hours, (laughs) whatever you want. Whatever Go you find want. a challenge worth worth tackling. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I love that. Uh, another one, a third one, decreasing job demands. Organizing work in such a way that it does not cause too much stress is mentally less intense as well as avoiding emotionally complicated situations with customers and colleagues and trying not to make, uh, trying not to make difficult decisions at work. <laughs> I, I want to find the authors. I want to line them all up <laughs> and I want to clock my left hand back as far as I can and just put it a, pow- a hip driven power slap across all their faces for putting that in this paper. It's ridiculous. Jobs Explain. Jobs that have challenges are emotionally difficult. They require you to make hard decisions. You want to have an impact in the world without any of the overhead of impact being impactful? Obey this. Try and make your job a swaddled in bubble wrap emotional haiku to, <laughs> I don't know, some kind of headspace <laughs> meditation. That's not what impactful work is, okay? Uh, So uh, I'm sorry, authors. This was a great overview and meta-analysis of burnout theory. Uh, I love you all, and I do not condone physical violence. (laughs) All right, I'm going to play play the role of Cal Newport and what I think he would say to that, which is, and I've mentioned it before, which is what I read into this or what I see with decreasing job demands is to lower the amount of work overhead, lower the amount of back and forth emails, lower the amount of unnecessary meetings, lower the barrier uh, between idea and execution such that a task does not balloon to be two or to require two to three to four times the amount of time that that task originally was designed to, to require. And I think that's what I read into decreasing job demands. I agree with you that you don't get one without the other. You don't get the pursuit of challenge and the pursuit of impact without difficulty. But what I see with that is lower lowering the unnecessary bits of work so that you're not so overwhelmed by it such that you have the brain space to increase to seek out challenges and the time to uh, develop professional skills and upskill yourself while at work and not something you have to do if you are going to do it on the weekends or after work hours. Yeah, that's a great observation. And uh, I really hope it's what the authors of this paper meant. (laughs) All right, we'll wrap this up with their last one, which is increasing the social resources of employment, asking if, uh, and they say asking if necessary for help and feedback uh, about the job from the supervisors and coworkers. And you spoke to this a little bit with your reframing this from the the perspective of the leader or the the C-suite, but anything else on that? Don't try and be right. Try and get more information. So as you're doing as you're doing these challenging projects, you're often going to be at the vanguard. You're often going to be alone in the wilderness. Ask people if you can show them what you're doing and say the following phrase. What am I missing? What am I missing? Tell me what I'm missing. It 
opens you up to the idea that uh, you don't have all the information and other people can help you. And if you go in with that attitude of, hey, you know, I'm willing to be wrong, I'm willing to be persuaded, people will help you. Uh, and so as you look for help, I wouldn't say, hey, help me with this. I'd say, tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me what I need to know that I don't know. You know, and people will take to that like, you know, like uh, my my two-year-old Australian shepherd with a bone and, and they'll help you. They'll give you hours and hours of their time telling you what they think. And through that dialogue, you will get allies because the humility that you brought to the situation engenders, frankly, likability uh, and, and engenders success. Okay, my friend, we're going to wrap this episode up uh, with a chat about eldertainment and what that is. Uh, but first, want to let everybody know, uh, if you are enjoying these conversations that we're having here on Optimal Agency, it behooves you to go to the website and re read the 18 rules that we have put together for health, wealth, and time. You can find them at optimalagency.co. Click on the top uh, link there. It says rules. You'll be able to get the rules and the behaviors of health, wealth, and time. All right, my friend. This is, we're gonna do a little hot take here. I found an article called uh, Eldertainment, Toymakers Target Grownups. And the, ar the, the article is about um, how uh, companies are realizing that there is much money to be had by re-engaging adults with, <laughs> with the toys and the joys of their youth. Uh, and the reason I wanted to bring this up to you and, and take this wherever you want to go with it, or we, we can take it wherever you want to go. But what I, I was reading this and what immediately popped in my head is the the Barbie movie that just came out. And I looked it up. It's made as of now 1.3, almost $1.4 billion globally. And then there's like, you know, there's the Lego movies and there's, you know, I just brought my kids to the Paw Patrol movie. All of these movies that we shell out so much money to be entertained by are nothing but a 90 minute or two hour commercial for little bits of plastic that we can then go buy it, you know, on Amazon or whatnot. And so I'd love your thoughts on, on this, on, on how much money adults are willing to spend to be convinced that they should buy more toys. This is these marketers, whoever has figured this out, and I know they really figured this out at Hasbro. They figured this out at Mattel, licensing out their characters, Transformers, D Disney, Barbie, Disney, Disney. Yeah. These people are brilliant marketers. Here's why. <laughs> okay, so you played with some stuff when you were a kid. I had Star Wars figures. I had these little Star Wars figurines. You know, the, I had all of them too. Uh, because at Ames Department Store, which I believe no longer exists, my parents went in just before Christmas. And uh, they were selling these figures in 1984, two for $5, except the cashier was ringing them up as five for $2. So I got all of them. <laughs> I got all of them. I and love if that you, you remember that. Yeah. And if you walked in, right, I, dude, I had that land speeder motorbike flying thing from Return of the Jedi with a button in the back. So you put a stormtrooper on it. And if you fly through the end, you push that button, it exploded. Just blew into a million little pieces. So cool. So cool. And you can hear me get excited. And that's why these marketers are brilliant. Because what they're doing is they're taking people who played with this thing as a kid 
and they're connecting them back to the unbridled joy of being a child with a new toy. And when you're a child with a new toy, all you experience is imagination and joy and some level of entering the hedonic treadmill of, I want the next one. I want the cool one. I've got the cool one. Aren't I cool? Look at the social esteem I get from having the toy my friends don't have. And then what they're doing is saying, well, wouldn't you love to share that joy with your kids? And you're like, of course I would. You know, I played with Barbies as a kid or I, you know, more aptly, I'd love the social message of Barbie being updated to a, a modern take on, uh, you know, a woman's place in the world and the power of, of uh, gender equality. And so I'm going to take my kids to a film that has that message at the same time that I'm going to share a cultural icon with them and I'm going to connect with my kids. And okay, so that all makes sense to me. We will spend all the money in the world to be a kid again. Whether it's skincare, healthcare, uh, fitness, right? We'll buy our youth back. And so that's what they're selling. They're selling parents their youth back. And at the same time, they're getting all these kids involved in the, in the same ecosystem. Because imagine, so your sons go and they watch you get excited about something that got you excited when you're, and I don't know what got you excited when you're a kid. I feel like it was like the Encyclopedia Britannica, which nobody's making movies about. But you know, if if you took your kids to a movie and they watched you get pumped, what would they immediately think? Dad loves this thing. I love dad, therefore I love this thing. And so these marketers are simultaneously hooking the next generation. You know, and you talk about one point three billion dollars in revenue, dude. That's just the movie. That's just the movie. What was the knock-on sales for, I believe, Mattel of Barbie dolls that now look like Ryan Gosling and Margot Robbie? You know, I'm guessing it's I'm guessing it was through the roof. And I'm guessing it still is. And so, yeah, I mean, I bemoan the amount of plastic that's being created in all of this. I really do. Um, but you really can't help but look at the genius of these companies in, in getting this marketing going. It reminds me of why professional sports work. Because if you think about professional sports, mostly you you grow up like just you grow up rooting for the team your dad or mom rooted for. And so you grow up with that experience and you go to the games and you get the t-shirts and the hats. And then at some point you become an adult and you now root for this team and the cycle continues. And in fact, that's how that's the only way professional sports really work is if they get kids hooked at a young age because they're the next generation of consumers, right? So it's really the same sort of cycle where, where you, you without knowing it, without thinking it, without it being done really on purpose, you're brought into the ecosystem and then your job in 15 years is to bring the next generation of consumers into the ecosystem. And as long as that flywheel continues to spin, then the sport or the 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 IP gets to have another generation of life. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So caveat emptor, if you're taking your kids to the Barbie movie, you are part of the cycle of the immortality of a small plastic doll. <laughs> All right. So make that choice with some intention. Hi, my friend. That was fun as always. Thank you. Uh, thank you, everybody out there for listening. Thank you for your ratings and your reviews. Thank you for sharing the show with your friends that helps us continue to get to do it. John and I will be back next week for another episode of the Optimal Agency Podcast.